Our next speaker is John Benari. John is the editor of the Catholic Family News. He's an internationally known speaker, a lecturer, he's a catechist and researcher, and he's authored a booklet uh, called the, um, and I, he probably has it for sale here, I imagine, called The a Permanent Instruction on the Alta Vendita, a Blueprint for the Subversion of the Catholic Church. And uh, this explains how the enemies of church have implemented all their various ways of destroying the church. The church. Um, John is going to speak on Father Dennis Fahey. If, if you're not familiar with Father Dennis Fahey, he's an absolutely uh, fantastic author who understands the proper political order of the world better than almost anybody and um, understands the kingship of Christ perfectly. He has an excellent uh, book on the kingship, kingship of Christ. I'm uh, fumbling here tonight. Anyway, though, it, without further ado, if I may introduce John Venari. I'd like to thank <clears throat> uh, the Remnant for having this conference and for inviting me as a speaker. Um, the name of the presentation is A Clear Vision of the Kingship of Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, this talk is actually rather serious, and it's late at night, so I, think, I thought I should start with a, just a story to loosen things up a little bit. Um, I'll tell you the story of the pig with the wooden leg. Uh, there was a man who was driving down a country road and his car overheated, and he pulled to a stop, and he went up to the farm, and he, he knocked on the door because he wanted the, uh, the farmer to help him give him some water for his radiator. And as he was standing at the door in the barnyard, he saw this pig hobbling around in the barnyard with, with a wooden leg. So they went out to the car, and they were putting water in the car, and, and the man said, uh, tell me, why does, why does this pig have a wooden leg? The farmer said, are you kidding? That's no ordinary pig. That's really one fantastic pig. Let me tell you, one time in the middle of the night, our farmhouse caught on fire. And that pig saw the fire. We were all asleep. We didn't know what was happening. Saw the fire. He went bashing out of the barn, bashing through the front door, ran around upstairs, oinking. He woke us up, and he saved the farm, and we were able to put out the fire and save the family. I mean, I said, that's fantastic. He says, yes, and another time I was on my tractor, and as I was driving, I hit a ditch that I forgot was there, and the tractor overturned, and I was pinned underneath of it. And the, the pig from the barnyard saw that, and he went running out to my son and uh, got him to follow him out, and he, he pulled the tractor off me, and he saved my life. And the man said, well, that's all well and good, but why does this pig have a wooden leg? The farmer said, you kidding? Great pig like that, you don't eat all at once. <laughs> so in some ways, this is actually appropriate uh, with the talk of Father Dennis Fahey, who was uh, a priest who did great work, great work, and in the end uh, was pretty much cannibalized by his own. Father Fahey's message, and Father Fay himself was not welcome in many quarters of the church, even before the council. Um, so what I'm going to be talking about here is the six points of Father Dennis Fahey, um, the divine program for our ordered return to him. 
And the reason I'm doing this is because we have to have a clear vision of what we're working towards. And Father Fahey gives us magnificent guidelines of how to recognize when a nation or any given historic period or anything, anything at all, is in conformity with the divine plan for order or not. And by understanding these guidelines of what makes a Catholic nation and what is the social kingship of Christ, then we will not only have a clear vision of the goals that we are working towards, but we're going to also recognize in our struggle if we are making true progress or not. So in order that you know what I'm going to be doing here and where I'm going, I'm going to give a quick outline of this talk. First, I want to talk about sanctifying grace, its definition and its importance. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on this as a, as a reminder of our theology. Second, I'm going to point out very briefly that the only way we can live this life of grace is through membership in the mystical body of Christ, the Catholic Church. And then third, in order for it to be conducive for souls to live the life of grace and lives of virtue, it is necessary that our surrounding environment be permeated with Catholic principles. And that's where the six points of Father Fahey come in. And then finally, we're gonna, I'm going to make a, a concrete application of these six points to a recent event in the church. So I want to start off then, like I said, by recapping our sacred theology regarding sanctifying grace, uh, which is a sublime teaching, because sanctifying grace is actually our participation in the divine life of God. And we're going to talk about its definition and its necessity. Now, it can be demonstrated from human reason that there exists a supreme being, that there exists a first cause of every creature, that there exists a providence guiding the world, that there exists a sovereign rewarder and a last end of all things. So from this natural knowledge, we will realize that as a result, we have certain duties to that supreme being and we have certain duties to our neighbors. All right. Those duties are what constitutes the natural law, and the observance of those duties is what constitutes natural religion. All right. Now, as far as our understanding of God and our relationship with him, this is about the best that we could come up with if we were left to figure the whole thing out for ourselves. Because no matter how powerful our human reason is, we would never know with any degree of certainty what constitutes the intimate life of the Supreme Being because he's so distant from us and so, so, you know, so far removed. But thankfully, God did not leave it up to us to figure the whole thing out for ourselves. God did not leave us in ignorance. He did not make our return to him a matter of precarious guesswork. All right? He told us about himself and about his divine life. He who is divine has revealed certain things about himself, and this is what we call, of course, as you know, divine revelation. Now, what comes through loud and clear in this divine revelation, that is, through sacred scripture and through the words of Christ, through the teaching of the church, what comes through loud and clear is the notion of paternity. All right? Paternity. Our Father, who art in heaven. See, God is Father, just to review our Trinitarian doctrine. God is Father, 
and in, and in eternity he begets a son to whom he communicates his nature, his perfections, his beatitude, and his life, okay? Because to, to beget is to communicate being and life. That's paternity. This life is communicated by the Father and received by the Son. And though the Father and the Son are distinct from one another, as two separate persons, nevertheless the Son is one with the Father, the Father is one with the Son, each has the same indivisible divine nature, and the Father and the Son are united in a powerful, substantial embrace of love, an embrace so great and a divine power so great that by it there proceeds a third person is the bond of love between the two, whom Revelation gives the mysterious name of the Holy Ghost. Now, this is what God has told us about himself, and this is as much as we can know about the secret of the innermost life of God. It's probably the greatest mystery of our faith. It's a source of, uh, of, of, of boundless meditation. But you could say that God wanted to extend his paternity, God decreed that certain creatures that are made by him, that is, angels and men, should also share in this divine life, a life that is higher than any natural life of any uh, created living being. And as the great Abbot Marmion teaches, he says, by nature, God had only one son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. But by grace, God wills to have an innumerable multitude of sons. And this is the grace of what we call, and what scripture calls, supernatural adoption. See, this is the doctrine of sanctifying grace. It is the divine life of God actually dwelling in our souls. Now, this grace is not given to us automatically at birth. It requires a second birth. That's what the sacrament of baptism is all about. A birth into a new life. This grace was originally communicated to Adam, but through original sin, Adam lost this grace for himself and his, and his descendants. Man was unable to reclaim it because grace is supernatural. There's no way that a natural human being could reclaim something that's not part of his nature. This grace was reclaimed for mankind, as you know, through the merits of the second person of the Blessed Trinity, Jesus Christ, who while being God, became man, died on the cross, and took our punishment upon himself, and he opened up to us the, the immeasurable reservoir of grace. And of course, as we know, the Mass and the sacraments is, is that pipeline to that reservoir of, of grace. Sanctifying grace is the pearl of great, great price, and what helps us to understand the value of sanctifying grace is the price that was paid for it, which was every drop of blood and the life of Jesus Christ himself second person of the Blessed Trinity. Now, I had said that sanctifying grace is not something that is due to our nature. And what does that mean? Well, in order to answer that, we have to, um, we have to look at what is our nature? What type of life is natural to us? Because as man, it is part of our nature that we have a threefold life. And it's just the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas here. And this threefold life, to a degree, we share with other creatures. Threefold life. We have vegetative life, we have sensitive life, and we have intellectual life. It's very easy to understand. First, vegetative life. What does man have in common with the plant world? All right. What do I have in common with my bush? 
What I have in common with my bush is the bush starts small and it grows. And so do I. I started small and I grew. That's vegetative life. We have growth. There's more to it than that, but you get the idea. Secondly, there is sensitive life. That means we have five senses. We see, we hear, we taste, we touch, and we have the sense of smell. The senses are stimulated and they deliver signals to my brain, which is a means of communicating to me certain information. All right? And this is something I have in common with my cat. Sensitive life. We share it with the animal world. Thirdly, we have intellectual life. We have intellect. We have will. We can think. We can reason. We can choose freely. And this is something we have in common with the angels. All right? Though the angels possess intellect and will to a far greater degree than we do. But this threefold life of vegetative, sensitive, and intellectual life is not the only life there is. There is still a higher life, something that is above our nature. There is the supernatural life of God, the divine life. And God shares this divine life with us through sanctifying grace. And this sanctifying grace causes a real change to take place in us and raises us above our human nature to participate in the divine. Now, we know this very clearly from the teaching of sacred scripture. Second epistle of St. Peter, chapter 1, verse 4, quote, that the Father, quote, has given us a most great and precious promise that by these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Sanctifying grace, we actually partake of the divine nature. And hence, the traditional Catholic catechism of sanctifying grace is still the best one. What is sanctifying grace? Sanctifying grace is a supernatural gift inherent in our souls that renders us just, adopted children of God, and heirs to, paradise, heirs to paradise. And we see that the scriptures teaches, like I said earlier, that we are adopted sons of God. Behold what manner of charity the Father has bestowed upon you, that you should be called sons of God. All right, that's uh, John 3, verse 1. Galatians 4 teaches the same thing. God sent out his son that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, this divine adoption is very different from human adoption in this way. That in human adoption, what happens? A stranger is made part of the family by a paper formality, by, a, by, by, by some type of, 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 of legal act. But that legal act, that paper formality, can never establish a substantial blood connection between the adoptive child and the adoptive parents. There is no way, if I adopted a little boy, there is no way I could look at that little boy and say, you are my flesh and blood. Uh, but through the medium of grace, there is established a true and substantial union between God and man. Those in grace, I should say, not man in general. Uh, between God and man. And this, 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 um, this sanctifying grace makes us brethren of Christ. The union of, with ourselves of Christ also means that if I am in union with Christ and you are in union with Christ and you are in union with Christ, we are related. This is a substantial union between you and me. This is what makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. Our Lord said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Why? Because if we can use this terminology, Abbot Marmion did, we're, 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 it's because we're all filled with the same sap, so to speak. 
which is the supernatural life of grace. Sanctify, I know that this is just, a, just a, a point which tells us also that we possess unity already. The truths of the faith, the life of grace is what constitutes Catholic unity. We need not go on any ecumenical trail trying to find it. Sanctifying grace enthrones the, the Holy Ghost in our souls. And as you know, this, the life of sanctifying grace is called the indwelling of the Trinity in our souls. Sacred Scripture teaches us. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Know you not that your members are the temples of the Holy Ghost who is in you, whom you have for God? And our Lord says the same thing. He says, if anyone love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode with him. All right, so to close this section, to sum it, to sum it up, we can see the sanctifying grace is the greatest and most important treasure that we can possess. Mortal sin, which is the only thing that can drive grace out of our souls, is the greatest tragedy that can befall us. So it follows then that the acquisition, the preservation, and the growth in grace is the most necessary occupation of our lives. And when we understand, accept, and live this, then only then are we truly in full contact with reality. And there is only one way to live in contact with reality. There's only one way to receive this life of grace is through baptism and through membership in the mystical body of Christ, the Catholic Church, which is the extension of our Lord's incarnation in the time. But man does not live in isolation. We live in society and this society, our surrounding environment, is going to have an effect on us, whether it be for good or for ill. And because we have a fallen nature, the practice of virtue, the avoidance of sin, and the preservation of sanctifying grace is always going to be a constant uphill battle for us. So that means we need as much help as we can get. So it follows that our Lord Jesus Christ must not just simply reign over individual souls, but he also must reign over nations and civil governments. Civil governments, just heard the encyclical. And the more that sin is legalized and becomes part of society, the more easily man will fall into sin, abandon their faith, and lose their souls, lose the life of sanctifying grace. So it follows then that governments and nations must not set up laws and customs Contrary to the commandments of Christ, the state has no right to declare something legal and good if Christ himself has declared it to be illegal and wrong. Cardinal Pia, the great champion of the kingship of Christ in the 19th century, he explained how important this is in, in, in the following quote. This is a magnificent quote. Over 100 years ago, the great Cardinal Pia of Portier warned that Christ's presence and influence must permeate every segment of society in order for, Christian, in order for Christianity and Christian civilization to survive. Here's what he said. He said, quote, so long as Christ does not reign over nations, his influence over individuals remains superficial and precarious. If it is true that the work of the apostolate consists of the conversion of individuals, and nations as such do not go to heaven, but souls one by one, we must never forget that the individual members of society 
live under the never-ceasing influence of his environment, in which, if we may not say that he is submerged, he is at least deeply plunged. So in other words, what Cardinal P is saying is it's not so much the Sunday sermons that he hears, but it's the environment in which he lives that is going to have the greatest impact on his life. He continues, he said, if the environment is non-Catholic, it prevents him from embracing the faith. Or if he has the faith, it tends to root out of his heart every vestige of belief. If we imagine Catholic social institutions with our Lord no longer living in the hearts of individual members of society, then religion has there become a displeasing signboard, which will soon be torn down. But, he says, on the other hand, try to convert individuals without Catholicizing the social institutions, and your work is without stability. The structure you erect in the morning will be torn down by others in the evening. And then he points to the enemy. He says, is not the strategy of the enemies of God there to teach us a lesson? They want to destroy the faith in the hearts of individuals. It's true. But they direct still more vigorous efforts to the elimination of religion from social institutions. Even one defeat of God in this domain means the weakening, if not the ruin of the faith, of the souls of many. So, like we said earlier, what this means is that states and governments have a duty to see to it that the influence of Christ and his sacred teaching permeate every vestige of society. It is necessary in society for the laws of Christ and the laws of government to be in perfect harmony. And only then will nations be in conformity with the divine plan for order established by Christ. And in the first half of this century, there lived an Irish priest who understood the importance of this divine plan. And he spent his life, an entire life, working, teaching, and writing in order that this divine plan for order may be known, loved, and practiced in the world. This great priest was Father Dennis Fahey, and he was born on July 23, 1883, and he died on January 21, 1954, about eight years before Vatican II. If there is one guarantee in reading Father Fahey's works, it is this, that once you read them, believe me, you will never look at the world the same way again. Because what makes Father Fahey unique is that he boldly and courageously proclaims the social kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is a Catholic teaching that was conspicuously missing from the pulpits of the English-speaking world. Um, Father Fahey's whole life's work was a prayer and a struggle to let the world know that Jesus Christ must be recognized as Lord and King by all nations, in private and in public. Father Faye Dennis dedicated his life, his entire life, to sounding the alarm, perhaps the final alarm before the great collapse, that the once great Christian nations are knowingly and willingly returning to paganism due to a spirit of naturalism that is pervading everything, everywhere, not by accident, but by design. The more that nations turn their back on Christ, the more they open the doors for Satan and his fellow demons to poison the minds and hearts of men and to bring the world into destruction and to utter ruin. Now, Father Fahey's motto was unwelcome, but simple and true. He said, the world must conform to our Lord and not he to it. 
The world must conform to our Lord and not he to it. So in other words, for nations to prosper and endure, states and governments, like I said, must base their laws of right and wrong on what the gospel teaches as right and wrong and on what the church teaches as right and wrong. Any other way is simply out of order. Father Faye also pointed out, along with the consistent teaching of the church and the popes throughout the centuries, that there are powerful organized forces working against Christ and his divine plan for order, whether they be called Freemasonry, whether they be called Zionism, whether they be called Communism, uh, really didn't matter. Father Faye gave them one title that covered it all. He called them the forces of organized naturalism. All right? And these forces of organized naturalism are working with unswerving diligence and terrifying success to de-Christianize society and to drive Jesus Christ from the hearts and the minds of men. They are working, and this is their self-proclaimed goal, I think everybody here knows this, it is their self-proclaimed goal to lift civilization off of its Christian foundation and place it on one of pure naturalism in which the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost will have no, no place. He also warned the world that there is to be a winner-take-all showdown between the beautiful Christian truths of supernaturalism and the satanic lies of naturalism. Now, because everything Father Fahey taught was, was in union with the consistent teaching of the popes, Father Fahey's material is a source of rock-solid Catholic stability. And Father Fahey's manner of instructing is reminiscent of the pre-Vatican II papal teachings in this respect. He teaches with authority, he teaches with clarity, and he teaches with certainty. All right, now just listen to the way he opens his magnificent book, The Kingship of Christ and the Reorganization of Society. Excuse me. Here's how he opens the book. He says, in my book, The Mystical Body of Christ in the Modern World, after having concisely explained the divine plan for order, I stressed especially the opposition to that divine plan owing to the existence in the world of forces organized for the diffusion of naturalism or anti-supernaturalism. Naturalism is in practice the same thing as opposition to the mystical body of Christ, the Catholic Church, as the visible expression as well as the divinely accredited exponent of the divine plan for order in the world. To that divine plan for order, he says, there neither is nor can be any man-made alternatives. Man has not got even the right to propose an alternative. His duty is simply to try and grasp what God instituted and then bow down his head in humble, in humble submission. Only by doing this can he fully acknowledge God's rights. Close quote. Now, Father Fahey goes on to say that man is free to debate on how best to arrange uh, the structure of society in accordance with with the divine plan. That's where the element of debate comes in, the best means to the end. But he says man is not free to debate whether he should accept God's plan or to draw up a plan of his own. And again, Father Fahey cries out, the world must conform to our Lord and not he to it. So the big question is, how does the world conform to our Lord? How can we tell if a nation or a movement or any given period of history is in conformity with Christ's program or not. 
Now, Father Fahey gives us a six-point outline which helps us to judge this. And this is the method that's found in three of his books, um, The Kingship of Christ and Organized Naturalism, The Tragedy of James Connolly, and The Kingship of Christ and the Conversion of the Jewish Nation. And it's also the method that he employed when he was teaching, uh, when he was a seminary professor, uh, teaching um, philosophy and church history. Here's what he said as far as when he's teaching the students. He said, in the outline of history that I give almost every year at the beginning of the year, I try for the mind of the scholastics to judge historic epochs, movements, programs of politicians, as well as the ideas of authors in the hands of pupils by reference to the six points of our Lord's program. Whatever is in harmony with this divine program for order will, mark for, will make for real progress. Whatever is opposed to it dispels, uh, I'm sorry, whatever is opposed to it spells decay and death. Thus I try to train them to make our Lord the center of their lives in every department. So what Father Fay is doing here is he is giving us a Catholic world view. Not a Protestant worldview, not a United Nations worldview, not a Teardian Gaudium et Spes worldview, a Catholic worldview. And it should be noted, too, that this six points is based solidly on the consistent teaching of the popes. The six points are as follows. Point number one. Point number one of our Lord's divine plan for order is that our Lord's mystical body, the Catholic Church, supernatural and supranational, transcending all the nations, is the one and only way established by God for our ordered return to him, and states and governments must recognize this as such. That's point number one. Point number two, if the state has recognized that there is only one true church, then the state must look to that church as the divinely appointed teacher and guardian of the moral law. And this is what is called the indirect power of the church over the state. Point number three in the divine program for order is the, the divine program for order calls for, the, calls for the unity and the indissolubility of marriage. Point number four, the divine plan for order in society demands that children must be educated as members of the mystical body of Christ so that they may learn to look at everything from God's point of view and so that the life of sanctifying grace may be developed and preserved in them. Point number five, the divine plan for order calls for a wide diffusion and ownership of private property, and this is necessary so the families may be free to obtain the sufficient amount of material goods that they need to, uh, to lead a virtuous life. Now, the sixth point deals with economics, so I want to move a little more slowly here, because we're not really accustomed to hearing church teaching regarding economics, but the teaching does exist. See, economics is not just money, okay? In economics, there is a three-stage hierarchy of arts, and each one must be in their proper sequence in the proper order. First, there is agricultural arts, which take care of man's primary needs. Second, there is industrial arts, which takes care of man's secondary needs. And third, there is money manipulation. And this money manipulation must be at the service of industrial arts and agricultural arts. 
See? So ideally, money is to be the servant and not the master. And this three-stage hierarchy of economics is to be at the service of members of Christ in happy families. So, we'll repeat it again. Agricultural arts recognized as first in the hierarchy of economics. Industrial arts, that is production, the means of production, is recognized as second. I mean, I can, I can live without my tractor. I can't live without corn. Okay, that's basically what he's saying here. Industrial arts is second. Uh, should be recognized as second as in the hierarchy of arts. And money manipulation must be recognized as third in the hierarchy of, of economics. Money should be at the service of these two. Now, Father Fahey points out that today we have the complete reversal of that order. Families and human beings, he points out, are sacrificed for production, and production is sacrificed for money. See, so these are the six points. Now, what Father Fahey does is he contrasts, there's two columns that he puts on his pages, and he contrasts this divine plan for order with Satan's plan for destruction. Point number one, we'll take them step by step. Point number one, our Lord's divine plan for order is that our Lord's mystical body, the Catholic Church, supernatural and supranational, is the one and only way established by God for our ordered return to him, and states and governments must recognize this as such. By contrast, Satan's aim is to prevent states and nations from acknowledging the Catholic Church as the one true religion, and the first step, he says, towards this disacknowledgement is to look at all religions as equal and to put the Catholic religion on the same level as false and man-made religions. doesn't matter what religion, just they're all the same. And to promote also, he said, uh, the Satan's plan is to promote, to do this is to promote the document, uh, the, do the doctrine rather, of separation of church and state. And also to accomplish this, it's necessary to promote the doctrine of liberalism, which in this sphere holds that one religion is as good as another. Any man is free to accept the religion that suits him the best. Um, you know the teaching. Point number two. If the state has recognized that there is only one true church, then the state must look to that church and the divinely, as the divinely appointed teacher and guardian of the moral law. And this is what is called the indirect power of the church over the state. Over the state. Satan's plan against this is to induce states and nations to view this indirect power of the church with contempt and to leave it up to the state or to the race or to the majority vote to decide what is good or bad, right or wrong, legal or illegal. We can see already the United States has failed on both points, point number one and point number two, all right? Point number three, the divine plan for order calls for the unity and the indissolubility of marriage. And Father Fahey points out that Satan, through his visible and invisible agents, his visible and invisible forces, seeks to undermine the Christian family in two ways, directly and indirectly. He undermines the Christian family directly by the legalization of divorce, and he undermines, and he undermines Christian family life indirectly by the promotion of immorality. Again, this is what we see in our country. Point number four, the education of children. The divine plan for order calls for children to be educated as members of Christ's mystical body, the Catholic Church, and to combat this, 
Satan aims at impeding or completely preventing the education of young people as members of Christ. And again, he does this by trying to, uh, to by working to corrupt youth, particularly in moral matters. And we can see that even our Catholic schools don't live up to this right now. So between the bad, uh, between the bad catechisms and, of course, the sex education that you all know about. Point number five: the divine plan for order calls for wide ownership diffusion and ownership of private property. And in contrast to this, Satan aims at concentrating at the concentration of property into the hands of a few, either nominally in the hands of the state or in the hands of the part, whatever party happens to be in power, or in the hands of the money of a few money manipulators. It aims at the complete socialization of property. Um, and the biggest threat we have to this right now in our countries, in our country rather, is this whole growing environmental movement where more and more they are seeking to do away with, uh, with the individual property rights for the sake of saving the environment. Because, I mean, even now, if, if you have your land and on that land you have a flora that's endangered or a fawn that's endangered or a frog that's endangered, you could lose all property rights over your own property. There's a story of a man in Pennsylvania um, who he owned a big track of land and it was all swampy and he was pretty industrious and he dammed it up. He made the land tillable and workable and he ended up in jail for disturbing a wetland. This is his own property and the judge, when the judge booked him, the judge said the time for the, the days of leniency for this type of thing is over. And then there's the whole, what's it called, the Wildlands Project, the Wilderness Project. Out west, they're seeking to return, like, I mean, 25 or 50 percent of the land back to the original habitat to get manned off the land because he's the major polluter. All right, so the environmental movement is one of the greatest threats we have right now to, um, to uh, the right to private property. Point number six, Father Fahey explains that Satan's aim is for money to be an instrument through which state uh, through which state control and state socialization can be brought about. So instead of the correct order of money being at the service of production, that, that hierarchy that we mentioned earlier, and then production being at the service of agriculture, there is the reversed. Men have to be subservient to production, and production must be subservient to money. Finance and money must be a principle of power and control. And Father Fahey warns the state control can only be maintained by financial control. All right, so these are the six points. Now, to wrap this up, I want to, I want to close with, um, well, I, an event that took place a couple weeks ago that we can contrast Father Fahey's six points with. On October 24th through the 28th of this year, 1999, Pope John Paul II convoked a lavish pan-religious assembly that was held at the Vatican and then moved on to Assisi where it was concluded. Uh, the various religions represented were Catholic, miscellaneous Protestant denomination, Islam, Muslim, Hinduism, Judaism, Native American Indians, Shinto, Baha'i, and a few others. There was about 20 altogether. Now the headline from this event Zenit News ran, ran the headline, 230 religious leaders study how to construct a better world. And if we had time, 
we could show you that this theme is right in line with the radical Vatican, the, the progressive Vatican II document, Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution of the church in the modern world. What we have now is the church in the modern weird. I mean, where do you hear this? Some of the pan-religious ceremonies included an American Indian pivoting in the center of St. Peter's, blessing the four corners of the earth at sunset. This is right in St. Peter's. In, 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 I mean, you know, outside where the, where the um, in St. Peter's Square. And they, also there were Mohammedans that spread out newspaper in the colonnade of, of, the, of the Vatican there uh, to kneel towards Mecca and pray. It's the type of thing that was going on. And there was also this ghastly interreligious concert in, Paul VI, in the Paul VI Auditorium on October 26th. It was a multicultural cacophony that featured uh, a focolari music ensemble called Generoso, something like that, a Jewish choir, a Japanese tenor and pianist performing pieces from the Tenrenko religion, Muslim sing singers, and Indian melodies played on a zither. Right? Just, I, wish, I mean, too bad we missed it. Um, pope John Paul II addressed the assembly on October 28th, and he told them, quote, this is the pope speaking, there is indeed a crisis of civilization which can be only countered by a new civilization of love founded on the universal values of peace, solidarity, justice, and liberty, close quote. Just in passing, every one of those religions is going to define these terms differently. But anyway, we'll move on. The, the Pope called the many interreligious assemblies that have been taking place throughout the world over the past decade, he called them a sign of hope. Now, the Pope's presentation, with all due respect, was it, was it was humanistic from beginning to end, and Christ was only brought in, he was only mentioned as one whose Holy Spirit, quote, helps us to widen our horizons, to look beyond our own personal needs unto the unity of the whole human family, close quote. This is the only time Christ was brought in. And the Pope also recalled with great relish the 1986 pan-religious meeting at Assisi, because this was actually the 13th anniversary of that Assisi meeting. And the Pope recounted with joy, quote, since that time, the spirit of Assisi has been kept alive through various initiatives in different parts of the world, close quote. You probably know in 1986, two months after the Pope um, uh, had that, uh, that uh, pan-religious meetings, he gave a Christmas message to his cardinals and his bishops, and he said very clearly, it's in the Observatorio Romano, that what happened at Assisi was the fulfillment of the teachings of Vatican II. This is what Vatican II was all about, and I want the spirit of Assisi to be continued in the church. And that's why you see it all over the place. And he's rejoicing about that. Since that time, he said just two weeks ago, the spirit of Assisi has been kept alive through various initiatives in different parts of the world. Talking to the various religions that were present, the Pope closed the speech with these words, quote, in all the many languages of prayer, let us ask the spirit of God to enlighten us, to guide us, and to give us strength so that as men and women who take inspiration from their religious beliefs, we, we, we may work together to build the future of humanity in harmony, justice, peace, and love. Close quote. Could have been written by John and Yoko. Um, this pan-religious event then closed with a final declaration of the, of the interreligious assembly. It's a little, a little pan-religious manifesto.
Now, this was produced through these series of afternoon work sessions that they had while this was going on. Now, I'm just going to read a few points of this final declaration. You're going to see, it, it, reads, it reads like a UN document. It stressed the need, quote, to confront together responsibly and courageously the problems and challenges of our modern world. The challenges they talk about, poverty, racism, environmental pollution, materialism, war, proliferation of arms, globalization, AIDS, lack of medical care, breakdown of family and community, marginalization of women and children. You can hear the, the feminists just cheering that one. They also stress the need to work together to affirm human dignity as the source of human rights and their corresponding duties in the struggle of justice and peace for all. They called the, to create a new spiritual consciousness for all humanity in accordance with the religious traditions so that the principle of respect for freedom of religion and a freedom of conscience may prevail. This is one of my, fun, my favorite lines here. We are aware, they said, that if we do not fulfill our obligations to live our highest ideal, as uh, uh, the, the highest ideals of our religious tradition, then we shall be held accountable for the consequences and we shall be judged severely. Close quote. We shall be judged severely. Does that mean the, great, the animus says, oh, if I don't be good boy, great thumb, crush me? I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's just so crazy that, it, you know, the, the Hindu is saying, well, I have a duty to, to live as a good Hindu. I mean, you, you see what's happening here. Anyway, the problems in the world are so great, they said, that we cannot solve them alone. Therefore, there is an urgent need for religious collaboration. See, more uh, interdenominational activity. Quote, we are aware that interreligious collaboration does not imply giving up our own religious identity, but is rather a journey of discovery. <laughs> we are aware of the importance of education as a, as a means of promoting mutual understanding, cooperation, and respect, and it, it implies supporting the family as a fundamental building block of society, Cultivating, now there's 20 different religions talking, cultivating a spiritual life through prayer, meditation, and mindfulness according to the practice of each religious tradition. It also said everyone is called, now I should mention too, this is not a, an official Vatican document, but it came out of this interreligious assembly that the Pope called, with Catholics included. It says everyone is called to engage in interreligious and intercultural dialogue we appeal to religious leaders to promote the spirit of dialogue within their respective communities. We commit ourselves to overcoming the gulf between the rich and the poor and to work for a world of true and lasting peace." Close quote. Now, what, I mean, on one level, what this does, in a way, it kind of transforms the Catholic Church into like a, a worldwide version of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I mean, I... Ha. I'm Mr. Catholic. I love everybody. This is Mr. Dalai Lama. 
He's nice. We never try and proselytize each other. <laughs> I'll let him pray the way he wants. He let me pray the way I want. And we're friends. We're working together to make the world a better place. Along with Mr. Muslim, Mr. Buddhist, and Mr. Snake Worshipper. Yes, we are. We're all marching hand in hand together into a new springtime. Can you say that? New springtime? I thought you could. This is what they've done to our church. It's so childish and, 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 and vapid and you know, it's, it's, it's just, what can you say? But what's even more troubling is if we contrast this with this, pan, this pan-religious declaration, if we contrast this with the divine plan for order that Father Fahey laid out, we can see that just right down the line, it falls short. And you, you, I mean, you, you probably know this. I'm just going to give you the headlines. We'll compare it with the six points, and then we'll close because it's getting late. Point number one, the divine program of our Lord's mystical body, the Catholic Church, supernatural and supranational is the one supranational is the one and only way established by God for our order to return to him, and states and governments must recognize this as such. And we saw that Father Faye pointed out that Satan's plan is to prevent nations from acknowledging the Catholic Church as the one true religion and to look upon all religions as equal. So we can see that in this entire pan-religious construct, with all religions being recognized as good and equal, it's completely contrary to the divine plan of our Lord, and it's also, from what we can see with the writings of Father Fahey, it's also in line with Satan's plan. Point number two, the indirect power of the church over the state, that is, that the state must recognize the church as the guardian and the teacher of moral law. And Satan's plan is to induce states to view this indirect power with contempt, and we can see, once again, with this pan-religious spirit of Assisi, it defies the divine plan because, as we can see with this latest manifesto, it just says that religion is kind of just a, a one-size-fit-all religion. Uh, religion is just good for society, and religion has to just be a good influence society to promote peace and liberty and equality and fraternity. Point number three, the divine plan for order calls for unity and indissolubility of marriage, and by contrast, in this pan-religious spirit of Assisi, we are called upon to build a new civilization of love with false religions. Practically every one of these religions which accepts the superstition of divorce and which rejects Christ's teaching on the indissolubility of marriage. What does the, what does the manifesto say? Quote, they believe in supporting the family as a fundamental building block of society. Period. That's all he says. Point number four. The begetting and education of children as members of Christ. That's, that's, divine, that's the divine program. And once again, by contrast, Pope John Paul is calling us to work toward this undefined civilization of love with members of false religions, the vast majority of which accept contraception, accept birth control. The Dalai Lama himself believes in population control. He's on some type of 
He's on, he's on some type of commission, a population control commission at the United Nations. And also, point number four, as I said earlier, calls for the education of children as members of Christ. But this new pan-religious uh, manifesto has nothing to do with educating children as members of Christ. Here's what it says, quote, we must help the younger generation to shape their conscience, close quote. I mean, is that Barney singing, the tree is my friend, please don't cut it down? You know, it could be. It's, this is not ambiguity. This is wide open. Now, point number, points number uh, five and six, the widespread diffusion and ownership of private property and the proper um, structure of economics, uh, there is re really no parallel in this, in this manifesto. The closest we get to it in this declaration is that same old tired song that there's this ever-widening gulf between the rich and the poor, between the haves and the have-nots, and, and gosh by gee, we, 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 we got to do something about it, period. I mean, that's as profound as it gets. So this pan-religious civilization of love fails on all six points. And remember what we said, what Father Fahey said earlier. Whatever is in harmony with the divine program, he said, will make for real progress. Whatever is opposed spells decay and death. Thus, we can say with certainty that John Paul II's civilization of love only spells decay and death, no matter how well-intentioned he may be. And as for us, we retain, we remain fixed on the ideals of the six points of the divine program for order, as enunciated by Father Fahey, which is a summary of the traditional teachings of the church. This has to be, this is a very helpful tool for us to gauge whether something is true or false. Because if we are unclear of what is our target, we're always gonna be wasting vast amounts of time, manpower, and finances, firing bad shots that leave us to, and that go nowhere and leave us despondent and in the end just ultimate, ultimately paralyze us into inactivity. Father Fahey's six points is the outline which what uh, constitutes the social kingship of Christ. So it follows that this is the construct and the goal that must be clearly in our minds and before our eyes in order to fight for the social kingship of Christ. And even if we think we can't win, because the odds against us seem to be too overwhelming, I want to try to dispel that despair by closing with two reassuring quotations by two prominent Catholics of our time. One, just so happens, is Dr. White, and the other is Anthony Frazier. In Dr. White's lectures on the present crisis, he never fails to remind his listeners, he says, we have read the end of the book. We know how the story turns out. In other words, with God, through the grace of Christ, we are already on the winning side. And if we should ever feel discouraged because in our efforts, we seem to lose more battles than we, than we win, we must not even think of giving up the fight. As Catholics, surrendering our arms is not an option. And if I may repeat the profound words of Hamish's son, Anthony Frazier. He said, we don't fight for Christ in order just to gain victory. We fight for Christ because it's the right thing to do. Thank you for your attention.